0: Hey guys, welcome to the Tech People podcast. My name is Ken Coyne. I'm your host and founder, as well as head of technology at Ops Talent. I believe at the heart of any success story are the people who made it happen. Diversity, creativity, and innovation, when nurtured in people, can lead to an unbeatable formula. I created this podcast to share the experiences of some truly inspirational leaders on their journey to success. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Tech People. This week, I have a very entertaining and informative chat with Pete Townsend about everything blockchain and crypto. Pete is the founding partner of Neuro Ventures, a fintech advisory firm that helps early-stage ventures to get the product to market, accelerate revenue growth, and secure funding. On top of this, he serves as a non-executive director for a number of fintechs such as Coinbase and QPQ. Finally, he's also the co-host of a very popular podcast called Money Never Sleeps. Now, we've seen massive investment and hype in blockchain and crypto a few years back, but then it went very quiet. Or did it? In this episode, Pete fills us in on what happened, what are the current trends, including some fantastic examples of why blockchain DLT is only getting going, and where it is going for the future. So welcome to the show, Pete.
1: Thanks, Ken. Awesome to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. Been wanting to say that for a while.
0: <laughs> You're definitely a professional, without a doubt. Uh, I love it. I love it. Delighted to have you on board. I'm really excited to talk about the whole blockchain and crypto today. But before we go into that, it would be great just to learn a bit more about you and who you are, please.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a startup advisor and early stage investor. I set up my business about four years ago in Dublin, based here in Dublin, in Ireland, for the last 15 years. Originally, as you can tell, not from these neck oh, yeah. of the woods, as you are, Ken. <laughs> not yet, not yet. Uh, not yet. I do have my citizenship that I got back in, <laughs> I think, 2011 through my wife. So originally from Boston. And then uh, after a, a great start to my career at Fidelity Investments, which is a fantastic place to start a career, I moved to Bermuda about 20 years ago, met my wife there, who's Irish. And when we got sick of the sandy beaches in Bermuda, as you do, um, just possible? because oh, it, 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 it sticks to you it sticks to you nice. and it's just, it's, it's annoying. And you just don't want to go anymore. So you know what we were doing? We were renting boats every Saturday afternoon for like $120 to go out. Right. Wow. And it was such just a waste of money. It's like to avoid going to the beach, to rent a little, Nuts. you know, six seater Boston whaler. So you could have a little barbecue nice, yeah. on these deserted islands or Sounds uninhabited awesome. islands. Awesome. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> so I had always wanted to give Dublin a shot and she's yeah. from Dublin. So we moved here in 2006, did a 10 year stretch with BNP Paribas. Awesome experience working for the French um, There's a little bit of a different way of doing things and had a long dint from a COO role for the Dublin operations to a global role around alternative investment operations, but had a little bit of a wake-up call in 2014 that I can, I can talk a bit more about and led me to set up Norio Ventures in, in 2016. Set it up with a bit of hubris and naivete, thinking that the okay. commercially friendly COO would just waltz out of BNP Paribas in 2016 in Dublin and set up a venture fund. But over the last four years have been through a number of different experiences and stops and starts and getting it going. Uh, but what I do is that I work directly with startups themselves in a similar way that a venture capital partner um, would take a seat on a board of a company that they invest in, and basically you're increasing the odds of success. that's your aim is increase the odds okay. of success, increase the value of your investments. I do that uh, as an advisor while I'm figuring out the right fundraising strategy for the eventual investments business that has been a long time coming, but I think we finally nailed uh, a strategy here to get it done. Awesome. Uh,
0: yeah. And you serve a number of boards do you? I mean, it's not just your startup spells or some bigger companies also, is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm on the board of Coinbase here in Ireland, okay. a couple of entities. I'm also on the board of a business called QBQ, um, okay. who are a digital asset behemoth in the waiting. Or in the building, shall I say? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, you know, the, really thinking about the next frontier of the capital markets and how that has become digital, and that uh, a number of people are now seeing that opportunity and are moving quickly towards that next frontier. Also, a business called Fund Admin Chain, okay. who are building a digital investment funds platform or digital investment funds network um, for all of the players that you would find in the investment funds industry to operate digitally. Also, a business called Olivia uh, out of the US, who's set up here in Ireland. They're all of those wonderful user experiences that you would get out of the best fintech app in the world, but sitting on top of your existing bank account. right? So you can unite all of your existing bank accounts and get these artificial intelligence powered nudges about savings and spendings. I've become addicted to it just by by using it. Also, Pippet out on the West Coast of Ireland yes. uh, yep. in Galway from a... Uh, tagline or value proposition perspective, they enable migrants to support their families back home cheaper and safer. Uh, but in a nutshell, it's base- basically digital cash remittance. So enabling really the conversion of hard currency um, that, you, that uh, it still is a thing out there in the world, especially in developing economies. Um, but getting that cash back home from developed economies back to your friends and family or where it needs to go, in lesser developed countries is really hard to do. Um, there's Correct. a number of players out there who basically, you know, just murder you with fees um, and take a big chunk out of that and pip it are making it all possible for, you know, built a great network around that. And also one fun board here in Ireland uh, that has not launched yet that we're still working on, but um, th- those are really the core that I'm working with.
0: It sounds, it sounds pretty busy. Uh,
1: it is. It is, you know, but I'd, I'd say managing this on an advisory basis, um, combined with kind of the roles of the company director for those businesses that, um, where they are, are a bit more established rather than being early stage where they're more in the okay. scale up phase or, you know, global growth phase, um, can be two different things, okay. right? Where with one company, you're, you're working through, you know, some partnership. Discussions with who out there in the market might be suitable for them to work with to help get their product to more into more people's hands. Um, others you're talking about staffing and finding key executives for their business, right? Um, and some of the times it's getting right down into the weeds of how do we actually get a product to market? How do we establish a beachhead for customers and how do we actually get this business funded? Right. And it's really hard to do all three of those at the same time. Um, Because it's really hard to get customers without a product. It's really hard to get product without funding. It's really hard to get funding without customers. Yes. And it can be a continuous circle that just keeps going on and on and on. And you can either end up you know, rocketing up the
0: Matterhorn or going down in the downward death spiral. Yeah, big challenge, right? Definitely. Awesome, Pete. Listen, well, today I, I wanted to focus on... Um, the blockchain, the crypto piece, because I know you've done a lot of work in the space. You work with a lot of companies in the space, and it was very exciting a couple of years ago. And then it kind of went a bit quiet. Um, and it would be good to learn, you know, a bit more about what happened uh, in the space. Well, you know, what's going on in the space, and we talk about some case studies. Uh, and also, why did you get interested in the whole area of blockchain and crypto?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I can tell a bit of a story around this one, uh, okay. which is a true story. Uh, which is always helpful, right? When you're yeah. when you're you're sharing the word and sharing insights with folks. But if you think about, start with my own entry into the space, which has a nice parallel or timeline, at least, into how things yeah. have developed. In 2014, I was just completing the acquisition um, of a business from another bank uh, when I was at BNP Paribas, and the big client that we needed to keep on board. Right. In the business that was being acquired. And obviously, when you're acquiring a big business, you need to keep the biggest clients on board, keep them all on board if possible, but you got to keep the big one. So we invited the big one to Paris uh, and it was hilarious because they got stuck, had to be rerouted to a different airport. They eventually arrived, but we had wheeled out the big head of innovation uh, for BNP Paribas to kind of try to give them a view into what uh, we were thinking about for the future. Uh, And we got to page 47 of a 50-page deck that we were flying through because (laughs) time was tight. And there were two words on that deck that I remember that I still see in my head. One was Bitcoin and the other was blockchain. Uh, And I kind of knew why Bitcoin was in the deck and thinking about the future of money, which is something Mm. that any innovation lab really would be looking into in the year 2014. Um, blockchain, I had been, I knew of it, but wasn't that familiar. Uh, okay. So after the meeting, I'm like, I got to figure out what this is all about. So use this little tool called Google. You ever hear that?
0: <laughs> yeah, I <heard> that. <laughs>
1: yeah, I went down, a, I went down the Google rabbit hole uh, and I started tracking it. And I still have the notes of the companies that I was pr- tracking back in 2014. Some have stuck around and done well. I think Overstock was one of them. T0 was, well, part of the Overstock uh, right. group. And I kind of saw in front of me when I read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, which is the original Bitcoin white paper produced in the year 2009. I got to page two and I started to see a brand new framework for the capital markets. Okay. Uh, in front of my face, and it was not looking at things called Merkle trees in the Bitcoin white paper. It was just understanding the flow and understanding the transactions and how they all worked. And I'm like, okay, there's a, you know, there's a direction to go in here. Um, and, I kind of, for, for my last you know couple of years at BNP Paribas, I got quite involved in that space, met a great guy internally called uh, Colin Platt. Shout out okay. to Colin. He was head of blockchain for BNP Paraba uh, Corporate Institutional Banking. He and I connected, another American guy, and uh, he and I are still pals. And um, he got me involved in the space. And I, I was just fascinated. Met some great people that way. So by the time I left in 2016, I knew that... If I'm going to build an investing business around my investment thesis or around mm-hmm. my view of the next frontier of money, the next frontier of the capital markets, that distributed ledger technology is going to have a big piece in that. So, you know, that, that was my entry. But running parallel to that, Ken, was Coinbase kind of building their business from, I think, 2012 forward. They went up well over a million users by the year 2014, 2015. Wow. R3 was formed in the year 2015 oh, yes. and R3 was kind of like, you know, uh, that guy in the um, innovation lab at BNP Paribas, Philippe Denis, I think that was his name. He would have gone out at the request of, you know, the, the senior management and said, go investigate this and see, you know, what's worth bringing back into the bank. And he and some, you know, a, a couple of tech gurus came back and said, let's look at Bitcoin, Right. Let's look at the Bitcoin blockchain, which is the only real back in twenty fourteen use case really for blockchain. And they came back saying, "Mining consensus algorithms, how are we going to actually apply this to the capital markets? We don't need this stuff." And so, a lot of other people besides just the guys at BNP Paribas had these conversations. And R three was formed to bring a bunch of banks together, all with the same mindset that says, "You know, there are some really strong concepts here." that can revolutionize the capital markets. Let's see how we can make that capital markets friendly, right? And that's where R3's product, Corda, started uh, being developed. And what Corda has become is what some refer to as enterprise blockchain, and it's developed along a different arc and a different path than where what we call public blockchains have evolved since 2014, 2015. So that journey has meant that folks in the year You know, 2015, 2016 started opening their eyes to this. And like Bill Gates said, and I said this so many times, people always overestimate the impact of technology in the short run and underestimate its impact in the long run. Right. And that happened. And we had a big uh, trough of disillusionment that some folks are still in. And it really depends on where you are in the knowledge cycle. Um, We went through the ICO craze in 2017, 2018, Bitcoin up to 20,000 or nearly 20,000. Then the crash back down to 3,000. The revelation that 80% of ICOs were either frauds or failed, right? And there was so much negative sentiment created around this. It made it hard for folks that were developing some truly innovative solutions to get them to market because you you try to talk to an executive about blockchain or distributed ledger technology and their eyes gloss over. They think you're talking about Bitcoin. But I, I believe everything works on bell curves, Ken. And there are coming out of all of this now into the year 2020, We now have enough people on the right-hand side of the bell curve that can see the same thing that I saw back in 2014, that a bunch of others saw since then and even before that, that the future of the financial markets, the foundation of that is distributed ledger technology. And it's not even the future, it's really the next frontier. And there are already, like I said before, pioneers out there on the frontier that are driving things forward. The best thing about this is we will know when it's mainstream when people stop talking about blockchain. How often do you talk about TCP/IP when you talk about e-commerce? Sure, never. never, never, right? So it will just be that you know there is a a critical mass of activity of, and I just like to say it, you know, I just call it digital finance. Um, it's just assets that only operate in the digital world and they're not operating offline in analog form as they do today. Uh, but that's a much, much longer story
0: uh, okay. to get into. But talk us, Yeah, it's very interesting. Talk us through some, I mean, companies and case studies. Maybe give us some examples of what's happened currently in the marketplace, and what's going well.
1: Yeah, so one to talk about is Fund Admin Chain. I'm an advisor to them, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what they're doing is realizing that in the investment funds world, you've got uh, investment funds that are holding digital assets. The thing is... You still need to account for them in an old fashioned way. You still need to hold them in these old fund structures and that operate on a paper prospectus. But, and it, it almost feels when you step back, it's a bit nonsensical that they still need to operate. You know, it, it's, it's like putting an incredibly hyped up stereo um, yeah. into a 1982 <laughs> Ford Escort. And I actually did that once. Um, and it was stolen, <laughs> it, it, it was stolen by Bob Toth. Thanks, Bob. Oh. Um, but, you know, what fund admin, fund admin Chain or FAC are doing in a nutshell, like I said, is um, building a digital funds network for the launching and trading of digital investment funds targeted at the top 500 asset managers globally. And bringing it back to the lowest common denominator, not the individual assets of the fund, but the fund structure itself. How do we create that in digital form? And it's operating on R3's Corda as the core of the FAC network and using digital assets, uh, basically fiat currency linked Tokens or stable coins, as are sometimes referred to to transact on the network. You can only use those in the network and you use these cash tokens to buy funds and the funds themselves are issued in digital form. They're one of the ones that I'm working with. Also, QPQ, as I mentioned, you can, you know, take a, a big, big view on QPQ and say that they're building a digital universe, right? Which is a, a, a massive view, big, or you man. can bring it right back to some of the. You know the, the the problems in the market right now in the capital markets, in that you have you have assets that are issued in analog form or in fiat form. You have assets that are issued in digital form. How can you actually um, get a digital issuance to market quicker? You get it to market where you are realizing all the benefits of having that asset issued digitally and also be able to operate across different di- digital asset platforms. There's a concept called interoperability, um, which know. is one of the hardest nuts to crack in the blockchain or DLT space. And there's uh, that is one of the, the key first problems that QPQ are, are solving, right? Is the interoperability problem, which is gonna be great to see uh, that happen. Also one of the other ones, Archex, uh out of London uh, yes, are building a digital asset exchange. Yeah. Um, Graham Rodford is the founder of that business. I had him on my podcast, Money Never Sleeps, uh, a little over a year ago. They are the first regulated digital asset exchange in London or in the UK. Okay, um, and they are. This business came from a realization back a few years ago that Graham had, and and the guys that he founded the business with, that you know they wanted to start investing in cryptocurrency for in the investment funds, the institutional investment funds they managed, but couldn't do it because the market infrastructure. Structure just wasn't there. So, how do we go build that instead? Right. So, they just got their first part of their licensing back uh, a couple of months ago from the FCA. And right. this has really gone beyond crypto to, again, like we said, assets being issued digitally. Um, so, where they are, they live and breathe as tokens, right, rather than paper based products. When I say paper based products, there's obviously that exep- acceptance that they're actually, you know, they operate in electronic form. Um, But one of the biggest things that digital assets um, enable is that you've got one golden record of that asset and where it exists and where it lives. Now it's a distributed record right? so that everybody doesn't have to keep their own records, but that's one of the big impacts here. Um, So when you are issuing assets digitally, when you're trading assets digitally, either in initial issuance or in the secondary markets, being able to do that, where you've got this incredibly efficient operating model around that, just brings everybody to the party.
0: Very interesting, Pete. And but I remember also there was a number of challenges in terms of blockchain, the technology itself, um, and it's also linked to the whole piece of data mining. Um, and was it, you know was it slow to operate in terms of the dealing with the transactions, and number of volumes? Um, could you talk us through some of the challenges and are are there still challenges? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, because
1: what's happened in the last couple of years is that, you know, blockchain has split off into two channels, right? There's enterprise blockchain, which is where you have private permission network like FAC, where there is one person that says you can come into the network or you cannot come into the network, right? And there is this, you know, centralization, even though it is a decentralized network, but it's a centralized gate to get in, right? And those type of private permissioned blockchains are operating without the consensus algorithms, without the mining, um, without, you know, uh, in order for a block to be completed, um, you need this very technical mathematical exercise to be completed, right? right. Um, that doesn't happen with private permission blockchains okay. or enterprise blockchains. okay? When you're talking about the Bitcoin blockchain, absolutely. You know that still has, although it's significantly evolved over the last eleven years, it is still, uh, it is still slow. It is still, you know, very very complicated and requires a lot of electricity to actually mine assets. Right? It requires a lot of electricity to run the entire blockchain. You know, if you look at other public blockchains such as Ethereum uh they're now going through uh, an upgrade to ethereum 2.0. I haven't dug into that in as much detail as some of the some of the other topics, but there is the expectation that that will enable an increase in volume and increase in throughput. And of course, you know, with blockchains, you know, people talk about, you know, exchanges getting hacked. It's not the blockchain that gets hacked, it's the gate into yeah. that. Right? So you have you have, a, a Bit, you have the Bitcoin blockchain, you have the Ethereum blockchain, you have whatever. On top of that, you have an asset. So on the Bitcoin blockchain, you have just Bitcoin and there's some other uh, Bitcoin cash and a few others. On top of the Ethereum uh, network, you have loads and loads and loads of different assets. Okay, And ERC-20 tokens are used to create so many different types of digital assets. And there's a, a big DeFi theme that's uh, pretty significant in the market right now that I won't get into. But the overall approach is that above you know that layer you have some pretty standard technology created around exchanges that you need to get through that you would log into uh, that you have an account that is entirely hackable right you know there's key management themes that you need to be cons- that you need to consider but mostly for any of these hacks that have taken place it has been through kind of a a, a non blockchain a non blockchain driven risk. It's just the, you know, the risk of, of cybersecurity and those types of things. Right. Now there was one, a couple recently with Ethereum classic uh, blockchain where they were, where there was a, uh, uh, the whole idea is that if you get more than 51% of the nodes to collude, you can actually take over the chain and, you know, result, which re- can result in some fraud. And that happened with Ethereum classic, which is a, which okay. is a much smaller, the original Ethereum chain but that's gone through um, the news cycles in the last couple of months
0: and no one's really talking about it anymore. So they're addressing well, They're, they're getting past all these challenges now, basically. Yep. Wow. And in terms of, I mean, the, the big banks, um, so are you seeing a lot of activities in terms of the, these financial institutions? And what are they You know, are they investing heavily still in this space? Yeah.
1: Again, it depends on where they are in the cycle, right? Okay. Are they still a couple of years behind? right? And are still coming out of the ICO phase. Uh, okay. And that's, you know, it, it's where you are in the news cycle, right? Where you, your research is, where your internal uh, development capabilities are. So yes, to, to answer your question, um, there are still big banks investing in this. Um, and there are especially where I see the most interest and take-up is out of Asia, just because Asia are, you know, a couple of years ahead of us here in, in the West Uh, In terms of technology adoption, and also because of the way that they've kind of almost skipped the queue in moving from creation of this very, you know, affluent middle class uh, that, you know, a lot of financial services were just created on a mobile basis, and they don't have all this old legacy infrastructure to deal with. Okay. Uh, And, and, you know, Asians are are likely to be the first one to market with their own central bank digital currency. You know, one of of the big topics out there right now.
0: Incredible piece. So where, where is it going for the future? I mean, it sounds like it's really kind of pick up steam now again, from what, what you're telling me. what is yeah, the future
1: yeah, hold? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think the best thing about this is that the steam never subsided right, at the, okay. in the development community, right? And in the startup community. It's just been the perception right, of these okay. things in the institutional community and that, you know, the smart money has always kept an eye on this. And what I like to say is, you know, the first thing about a blockchain startup is don't say the word blockchain, right? Don't say the word God. distributed ledger technology because it's that's just your infrastructure. Your value proposition is, you know, reducing friction, it's creating new revenue channels, you know, reducing cost, you know, taking headaches away. Um, you know, but you, you really do need to stress the revenue creation as being one of the big things. So, you know, where I see it all going, I think it's going to continue on, along the themes really for the last 18 months. You know, this whole DeFi craze, a lot of people look at that and say, well, eh, it's kind of like a bit too, feels a bit scammy. Um, right. well, I see that as kind of the building block. So then the next phase, you know, we got to go through these experimentations in the market. You know, ICOs for all their, you know, comedic intent <laughs> um, resulted in security token offerings. Right, which are issuing legitimate securities digitally as tokens that folks like um are trading, folks like QPQ are able to support the creation of and issuance of, you know. So I see that continuing. I think it's we're going to see this nice convergence, really, between being able to put digital assets into individuals' hands and putting digital assets into the capital markets and that each one of those are going to move at pace, perhaps individually for a while. But the best thing about that is that the infrastructure is exactly the same, right? Um, And that there's a connecting piece in the middle that I think that is developing uh, that I'm going to hopefully keep my eye on closely called regulation, right? Which is uh, the marketing crypto assets, new proposed regulation that came out uh, a few weeks ago or the draft of that came out a few weeks ago. It's going to take a few years to implement, a okay. few years to negotiate, you know maybe within three or four years it'll be live, but it's really going to level the playing field at least in Europe so that digital asset players know the rules that they can they can play by, right? So yeah, um, okay. I, I see regulation continuing to build and I see the best you know the best results from the players in this space coming from those who can embrace the regulation. Um, And really be able to kill three birds with one stone, which is being able to address market regulations such as MIFID, e money, and what is now being called MICA or MICA, marketing crypto assets, all in one way. Or if you're exposed to something like USITS or the Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive, you're able to work one or other of the both into your overall business strategy to be able to say, how am I going to be able to meet all of these regulatory needs? By operating a financial services business that is also operating uh, within digital assets, you know I think yeah. that's just going to become the norm. And what's the good thing about this new proposed regulation is that it's suggesting that there's a number of regulatory regimes out there that just don't fit with digital assets, and we're going to have to address all of those one by one. Um, and that's I think that stuff. we're going to see that
0: continue. Fascinating, Pete. Really is fascinating. Well, I didn't listen, tell us so for you in the future. Um, I know you continue to invest in companies, I guess, in the blockchain space. Yep. Uh, what do you look for in the, when you looking for these kind of startups? If, uh, if, it's, I, if the company's interested in reaching out here, I mean, what are you looking for? Yeah, I look.
1: I look for deep firsthand experience in the problem they're solving. Right? Um, do they know their market inside and out? Are they talking about the value that they're delivering rather than the architecture that they're using? What does their team look like? Where do they come from? Obviously, firsthand experience with the problem you're solving is critical, but do you have a well-diversified team of people that like each other, right? Um, And that like to work together and want to build something together and are in it for the long haul? I saw a great quote from a founder the other day that said, don't worry about my mental will and my resilience. I've got both in buckets and there is no bottom to either one of those buckets, right? So, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking for. You know, those with people talk about technical founders, um, those that have a challenge getting a product to market. I really like technical founders, um, but also I really like commercial founders as well because they've got this great enthusiasm and um, about getting out there and selling their product and they're, they're bigger risk takers and are willing to just go be embarrassed, right? Because they're trying to sell something that just isn't positioned right, but they know it's part of the process. Um, those that are willing to take no for an answer from investors and learn to love that no. We talked about that on our podcast, Money Never Sleeps last week, that I think it's one percent or no, 10% of the meetings that you're gonna have with investors um, actually may lead to a check. So unless you're trying to get some good insights out of the VCs, when you're meeting them, you're gonna waste 90% of your meetings. Right. So you get you got to plug into that pretty quickly and know if it's likely to be a no. Uh, and if it's going to be a no, try to get something else out of that meeting. And it was the guys at NFX, a great venture firm out of uh, California, um, that penned a piece on that that got me thinking about that. And uh, Owen Fitzgerald and I, from from the podcast, we talked about that in depth.
0: Yeah, awesome. Actually, you might mention that actually. So one the podcast that listeners can listen to more about topics they're covering and also how they reach you. Please, Pete.
1: Absolutely. So Money Never Sleeps is a weekly podcast where we get inside the minds of entrepreneurs. And also look at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. That's moneyneversleeps.ie. You can find it on all your major podcast platforms. Big thing with that, it's all one word. And that was the way that, uh, well, is there a movie called Money Never Sleeps? Yes, but it's three words. The podcast is spelled as one word. Okay, so we're okay there. Um, And also just to get in touch with me, my business is Norio Ventures, and my email is pete at norioventures.com.
0: Fantastic, Pete. Listen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed the kind of chat.
1: My pleasure, Ken. Thank you.